Hello and welcome to Playback Daily for Thursday the 20th of April. I'm Louise Herity and here's just some of what's coming up. Basically that was it. Life as we knew was changed forever. We really didn't know at that point what was going to happen, whether he was going to make it or not. It's ra- it's rare that, um, you know, people are able to be in a position to, to thank people like me for the work that we do behind the scenes. So it was it was a pretty incredible moment. I'm very thankful for it. I just absolutely dread that knock on the door, and, you know, that somebody coming to, to, talk, to talk to me for a few minutes, just in case it means somebody's leaving and recruitment needs to start all over again. It was reported yesterday that Jonathan Dowdall has been formally accepted into the Witness Protection Programme. And if you were wondering what it involves or what life is like in witness protection, Conor Gallagher, the crime correspondent with the Irish Times, joined Claire Byrne to tell her more. And Conor, thanks very much for joining us today on the programme. This Witness Protection Programme, when did it all begin in this country? Uh, it goes back to, officially it goes back to 1997 um, when Gardaí were intent on taking down the John Gilligan's criminal gang um, in the aftermath of the murder of journalist Veronica Gearan, which was a seismic event in Irish society, perhaps only rivaled by the, by the Regency attack in 2016. So the programme was brought into being to, to provide some, some form of protection for people willing to give evidence against the Gilligan gang. And the first person to enter that programme was a man called Charles Bowden, uh, himself uh, a, 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 a long-standing criminal who had information um, about the gang and, and, and was involved in the killing, or sorry, was involved in preparations for the killing of Miss Gearing. He agreed to give evidence uh, um, in, in relation to, in return for immunity and for entry into the programme. And uh, but as has been the case on multiple occasions since, uh, the courts ultimately uh, said they couldn't trust his evidence uh, because he had everything to gain from um, from giving it and nothing to lose. And his character, he'd shown himself to be a criminal and a liar. So mm-hmm. um, it, it, it illustrated from the start the weaknesses of the programme. Right, and that, um, I suppose, reminds us of what we heard this week from the Special Criminal Court. And going back to Jonathan Dowdall, we heard towards the end of that case that he was being assessed for the witness protection programme. What is that, though, that, that assessment? How does the whole process work? Who decides whether you're eligible? Um, so the assessment is carried out by uh, a, a very secretive unit of the Gardaí um, in conjunction with officials from the Director of Public Prosecutions. And the assessment is based on lots and lots of different factors. Well, the first one is, uh, and probably the most important, uh, does this person have evidence? Uh, is that evidence strong evidence? Is it uh, credible? And is it evidence that they, we can't get anywhere else? And uh, Dowdall ticked all the boxes uh, for, uh, for the authorities in that sense. Then the next one is are they likely to comply with the terms of a witness protection programme? You know, are they a chaotic individual? Do they have, say, drug addiction or mental health issues, meaning that they will uh, damage the integrity of the programme if they are admitted to it? Uh, third is can Gardaí actually provide a protection? Are they able to find somewhere to put this person potentially for the rest of their lives? Um, in, in some cases, that, and in Dowdall's case, that would probably mean abroad. So they need to get cooperation from foreign police services. And there's usually bilateral relationships that they can rely on. But um, in some cases, some 
in a particularly high profile person some other jurisdictions might be unwilling to take them. So those are those are just a few of the considerations mm. that go into uh, these assessments. And are people on the programme always sent abroad or do they sometimes remain in Ireland? No. Sometimes they remain in Ireland. So it's about the threat threat level to them. Uh, you know, sometimes it'll be a case of someone's in Dublin, they might move out to the west of Ireland or vice versa. Uh, there hasn't been a huge amount of people who've gone through the programme. Um, but uh, uh, indeed, some people have been sent abroad and that could mean just going to England. You know, if you have someone who's under threat, but the threat is from, say, a relatively small, unsophisticated gang, sending them to England might be good enough. Uh, in other cases, it might have to be much, much further afield, uh, 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 or even a country where people don't speak English. Yeah. Uh, although that's obviously not ideal from any point of view. I don't know if you would agree that there there could be a romanticised notion, perhaps promoted by the movies, that you head off and you're on a lilo sipping a pina colada somewhere very warm when you're in the witness protection programme. It's not quite like that though, Connor, is it? No, no. Uh, uh, generally speaking, a witness protection programme operates on a like-for-like, like, the principle of like-for-like. Like. So uh, your standard of living in Ireland, they will generally give you the similar standing, standard of living abroad. So in some cases, the people who enter the programme are you know, they're on social welfare or their standard of, they're on the lower rungs of a criminal enterprise so their standard of living isn't very high. Uh, so they can't expect uh, too much when they go abroad. In other cases, like uh, Jonathan Dowdall had a pretty successful uh, electrical company. So I need a fine big house there up on the um, Navan Road. So he would have a slightly higher standard of living. But really the guard's uh, obligation is to allow them to get on their feet and the goal is to allow them to provide for themselves. And there are several ways you could do it. In the past, they've offered training courses. So some can retrain in a new profession. Um, uh, they've offered uh, interest-free loans. Is something that's happened in other jurisdictions. I don't know if that's happened here to set up a new business. As an electrician, you know, Dowdall has a valuable trade, so he'll be able to probably fall back on that, particularly since it's not a high-profile thing. So if someone is a lawyer or a doctor or something, they might have to change profession because it's a relatively high-profile trade. Electric you could maybe slip under the radar uh, in, in your new home. But uh, the goal is to get them off the reliance on, on state funds as mm-hmm. quickly as possible. So you're not going to be, and, and it's a principle of it, that you can't get a lump sum either. OK, but, but the state has a duty to protect that person. And this is all about the integrity of the programme. Explain that to us. So the, 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 the agreement uh, participants in the programme will enter into will be very, very detailed and will be akin to, well, it would be a contract, uh, although whether that's a legally enforceable contract, I think is something that's uh, still up in the air. But uh, you'd have rights and responsibilities and one of your rights would be protection. Now, if you're abroad, uh, the protection the guardie are going to, uh, be able to give you would be very, very limited. So what Gardaí would rely on is protection from local security services um, who would then bill the Gardaí for the f- f- for the price tag. And then again, Gardaí in all likelihood would do the same for other jurisdictions. So we could well have uh, protected witnesses from the States or the UK mm-hmm. living here. It's all but certain that we do have. So there is a duty of care. But if someone leaves the programme, that duty of care ends. The High Court has actually found that in a previous case, uh, that if you decide you don't want to be a part of the programme, the Gardaí don't have a duty of care anymore. Now, you have spoken to people who have participated in the Witness Protection Programme, haven't you? I mean, what did they say about it? How have their lives been? 
Well, uh, I, I, one person, one source I spoke to who had knowledge of the programme, they worked in a participant in them, themselves, told me they wouldn't wish it on their, their, their worst enemy. Uh, you know, your, your, your life can be really, really grim abroad. Um, lots of them would suffer from mental health issues. They would suffer from, or uh, if they were a drug addict and had clean, become clean, they would fall back into drug addiction. Some of them will get in trouble with the law again. And all of these things are, are things that can result in you getting kicked off the programme. Um, the uh, one person who uh, described to me a handler going to visit a protectee and finding the money with a stick of butter in the fridge and, and nothing else. So it could be a really dark life. And you can also have a very, very lonely life because mm-hmm. um, the state is not obliged to spend your family with them. That's a case-by-case basis. Uh, there's an interesting document from the UN Office of Drugs and Organised Crime which says, uh, outlines good practices for witness protection programmes. And it says... Depending on social norms and cultural ties in a country, uh, someone may have their whole family with them or they may go alone. So uh, I, we don't know what's happening with Dowdall. He's got kids, he's got a wife. Are they all going to go with him? If not, you know, he's going to face a very, very lonely life. Uh, if there are uh, provisions for uh, you to keep in touch with families, but it has to be through a secure line uh, set up by the by the authorities. Uh, occasionally there can be reunions, but that has to happen in a third country, and it's very rare because it's very, very hard to set up. So it's a really lonely life. So before you give your evidence, if that's why you're taking part in this programme, you could cut a deal with the state and say, well, if you're going to put me in the witness protection programme, I want my family to come with me. But the reality is, as you've explained there, the state is under no obligation to send the family with you. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose what's interesting in the, in the Dowdall case is Dowdall wasn't admitted to the programme until after he gave, he gave evidence. So he's kind of lost a bit of his bargaining power there, you'd imagine. Um, obviously the states would want him to give evidence, so maybe would, he wouldn't give him more concessions. Uh, but he'd already given evidence. The evidence wasn't great, uh, um, but uh, he would have had less of a bargaining power uh, as a result of that. But he may have done the deal before the end of the case? He may have done the deal before the end of the case. Either way, the, the verdict and the judge's skating criticism of him won't affect the deal. Now, um, it's not used very often. I think you alluded to the fact that there aren't many people who are on the Irish Witness Protection Programme. Uh, how many times has it been used? We don't know, is, is, okay. is the honest answer. Because there'd be times when someone would be entered into the programme, but a case doesn't get to court for whatever reason. Um, usually someone would plead guilty. So there'd be no need for this person to appear and give evidence and it'd be disclosed that they're in the witness protection programme. I've been told, you know, we're talking dozens, not hundreds, but dozens, you know, so perhaps under 50. And in terms of people coming in the other direction and coming into Ireland for other states, we know that has happened in the past, but again, we're not able to get figures, are we, Connor? No, I mean, that's the, the, the programme prides itself on, on secrecy and rightly so, uh, you know, and it also prides itself on the fact that it's never had a breach. Um, so if it's got to be hugely embarrassing if, you know, a, a witness placed here by an overseas authority uh, had their identity revealed and that hasn't happened. So no, I'm afraid we don't know that either. Mm-hmm. But you have been able to find out how much this costs the state. That's right, yeah. That, that those figures are publicly available. Um, so it seems to have a budget every year of uh, 1.2 million. Um, that's been going up uh, somewhat, but it's still they only uh, spend a fraction of that. Uh, so I think in 2021, 
they spent two hundred thousand uh, euro on it. So mm-hmm. that goes to show you that the, the limited financial support that that goes in the you know these people. We can expect when Dowdall gets out of prison in four years' time. You'll probably see a jump as the state will have to pay to set him up with a new life and then it'll come down again would be my guess. But it's a strange old scheme because there's no legislation governing it. Are there any plans to change that? No plans um, uh, 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 that I'm aware of to to change it. When this, uh, shortly after the scheme uh, was brought online in the early 2000s, there was calls in the doll for it to be put on a legislative footing. I believe Labour were pushing for that. And uh, the Guard Commissioner at the time, Noel Conroy, he pushed back and he wrote in a memo that, that actually putting it in legislation uh, would reduce the flexibility of the Gardaí. Gardaí needs to be able to tailor-make this programme for different scenarios mm-hmm. or whatever. So there, it might be time in their hands to have it laid down in legislation. Other observers would say, well, this is such a sensitive area. It needs to be... The, there needs to be some kind of Oireachtas oversight or at least Oireachtas should have some input into how the, the thing is set up. Conor Gallagher, crime correspondent with the Irish Times on Today with Claire Byrne. In 2019, the Monona Heron Fund was set up to help women in marginalised communities back into education and the workplace. And at an event last night, organisers confirmed the fund was going to be extended to help more women. And reporter Fiacra Okioni had this report for Morning Ireland. So in 2014 I acquired a disability and um, in 2015 I realised I wouldn't work 9 to 5 again. And then from 2015 to 2017 there were dark days, I became depressed, I was faced with losing my home, my self-esteem was at rock bottom. Caroline O'Shaughnessy's life has transformed in recent years. The Galway woman now has an honours degree and is setting up an NGO in social enterprise. I stumbled across an ad on Facebook for a course that was being run by Equal Ireland and it was for a BA in Business, Enterprise and Community Development. To be honest, when I first started, I was hoping that I would get to meet people in the town because I didn't know anybody there. I was hoping that I'd be smart enough to finish year one, but in actual fact, I ended up with a degree in business, enterprise and community development. And I actually went on then and did an honours degree with them as well, which I got. Caroline's course was funded by the Manana Heron Empowerment Fund, which was set up in 2019 and is funded by Bank of America and the Department of Rural and Community Development. The fund is organised by Rethink Ireland, whose chief executive is Deirdre Mortel. We set out together four years ago to say, how could we, using 2.2 million euro of funds, support a thousand women who have really almost no chance of getting a job into not just a job, but decent work. Most women who participated in the programmes, many of those women found it very difficult to get work. So through accredited training, coaching and various other types of innovative supports, including on the job supports, uh, they've been able to uh, move into, honestly, all different kinds of jobs. Uh, so. I think having the Monona Heron Fund there to really support women back into employment after that has been very powerful. So powerful, in fact, the fund has now been extended to specifically target migrant women and women living in poverty. 
we will be taking this forward with a new fund that is open for applications uh, called the Women of Ireland Empowerment Fund and this one will be focused specifically on migrant women and women uh, marginalised through poverty. RethinkIreland.ie The new fund was launched at the National Gallery of Ireland last night at a gala including music from Discover Gospel Choir. The gala's key speaker was Dr Cindy Joyce, a lecturer in sociology at University of Limerick, who in 2019 became the first person from the travelling community to earn a doctorate from an Irish university. I think this fund is important for uh, many marginalised communities in particular. You know, we all know that there is barriers for marginalised women in, in employment. And if we look across Ireland and we look at the particular groups in Ireland and we look at um, traveller women, for example, um, eight, over 80% of the Mincari community are unemployed. That correlates with a survey that was done in 2017 where over 80% of employers said that they would not employ travellers. It's a call echoed by Caroline O'Shaughnessy, who has one message for marginalised women who may want to follow in her footsteps. I would absolutely say, do it. My self-esteem is at rock bottom, and I never forget getting the first feedback on the first assignment and being told that I was well capable of doing it. It really is a gift. They're amazing. The Discover Gospel Choir ending the report from Fiacra Okioni on Morning Ireland. Well, it's five years since Meath man and loyal Liverpool fan Sean Cox was subjected to a random and unprovoked attack outside Anfield on his way to the Champions League final. It changed his life and his family's life forever. Evelyn O'Rourke visited the family for this report on Today with Claire Byrne. Well, in the aftermath of the attack, Sean needed massive rehabilitation therapies and support to help with his brain injuries. And the donations from supporters both in Ireland and across the Liverpool football community have helped hugely. And five years on from that dark day, Evelyn O'Rourke has been to visit the Cox family home in Dunboyne. So, Evelyn, I hear you had great chats the (laughs) other day with uh, Martina, who's Sean's wife. You had to be dragged from the house in the end. Oh, the chats. Uh, you know one of those you leave and you go, did I stay too long? But it was just <laughs> such a lovely visit. I got such a welcome, Claire. They live at the edge there of Dunboyne Village in Meath and it's their original family home where they reared their three lovely children, Jack, Sean and Emma, who were kind of older teenagers, college age, when this happened. But they've revamped the house to suit its needs and it's really beautifully done, I have to say. It doesn't have a clinical feel to it at all, which was kind of really important to Martina. It's definitely, definitely a warm family home first. So you spent the afternoon with Martina. I know Sean was resting because he had a tough morning at the rehab centre. Martina wants to show you the dedicated rehabilitation and physio area that they have now in the garden. So tell us about that. 
Yeah, it's really impressive. There's a lovely garden out the back and this leads out to the rehab physio treatment area, which just looks like a really cool showmer. And that's where he spends most of his weekday mornings working out with assistants. And, you know, Martina told me that he has made such good progress from that first day when she, she kind of describes it, Claire, as the 17 seconds of madness when that happened. And she is so thankful to all the support they've had. People have been incredible. She still gets letters in the post from people. So we're going to start with Martina showing me around this very impressive rehab room they've installed there. And there's a very special framed jersey signed by Liverpool hero Kenny Dalglish also hanging in pride of place. So this is your version of rehab centres, right? This is really impressive. It's small, but it ticks the boxes. So that's what Sean started on. Okay, so this was the first kind of stand support, right? Then he went on to this. So kind of walker frame. Then this is new. This is like a it's a walking stick on four wheels. Yeah, and it has a handle like a spade because if Sean's walking and his foot kind of gets in the way, this just moves forward, whereas he still needs assistance. Absolutely, 100%. But it's very good for Sean that he has moved on. But it's like they're going down in size. It's moving him on, but it has to be done in a very safe mm. environment. Like there has to be the physio and myself would need to be there and maybe the carer would have the wheelchair just in case. Looking at a Kenny Diglish signed jersey here. Kenny actually gave that to me to give to Sean and obviously I got it framed and every time Sean walks he sees it. So he's got all his the nice memories around him. Okay, so then over here, right, we've got fancy looking beds and little machines. Talk me through what the kit is here then. It's just a plinth where we would do a lot of the stretching on that. Stretching's really important. Stretching's hugely important because obviously we've been away with Sean now. We've been to Portugal. So we would be showing Sean how to as we would say, scooch up in the bed. <laughs> so that when Sean is getting onto the plane, that he can move up and down. And, and he can do that. He can actually do that. Really improved in that sense. I think when I told him we're going to go back to Portugal, he was like, this is really important. So I'll do what do I have to do to get on the plane? Yeah. Okay. This is a standing frame. Standing is so important for anyone that's kind of sitting down all the time. So, so this allows him to stand safely? Yes. He could actually have his lunch the whole idea would be to Sean to stand for as long as he can. We have the stretch bands as well. And you have people who come to the house to do this with them here? Yeah, like we have bowls, we do lots of different things, games. We put these little cones down <laughs> so that Sean can't walk in a straight line, so make it more difficult for him. It's like an obstacle course <laughs> yeah. for him. But Sean likes that because we try and mix things up all the time, so it's not the same. Because I think it's really important because he's doing it five days a week, so you need to mix it up for him. Just listening to Martina there, I'm thinking about what she said earlier, Evelyn, the 17 seconds of madness going back to that day five years ago. Just remind us what happened outside the Anfield Stadium. Yeah, well, Sean and his brother, Marty Clare, they were on their way to that match. And just metres from the stadium, he was the victim of that unprovoked attack from a group of so-called ultras, is the phrase. They're described as a group of hardcore, highly organised young Italian Roma football hooligans. And many of them were covering their heads and their faces. And some of them were carrying belts as weapons. And he was hit on the side of the head and that completely unprovoked attack collapsed onto the ground and causing catastrophic brain injuries to him. Now, there were three men involved in the case, two men subsequently jailed for violent disorder, another man convicted convicted of the attack and jailed for three and a half years but he was released early from prison so Martina was telling me that they were all out actually before Sean even came home from rehab Okay and what, what does she say about how their life has been since that day how are they managing? 
Well, she said, look, I knew very little about the hospital or healthcare world before the attack. So she really was thrown in at the deep end. And she says they would not have been able to support Sean the way they have without all the wonderful fundraising and donations because so much relies on private money paying for the therapies. And she says, look, we were very lucky to get the support. And we talked about the terrible stories that she's heard from other families, you know, who have vulnerable loved ones too, and how they can be left without sustained good intervention. And she says there are huge gaps there in services for families and that people like Sean with acquired brain injuries have to constantly fight for supports, which really isn't fair. But here Martina talks more about some of the challenges. I was here. I was in the kitchen where Sean is now sleeping. Just there. Like just there. It was a normal Tuesday and you just get this phone call and basically that was it. Life as we knew was changed forever. We really didn't know at that point what was going to happen, whether he was going to make it or not was told that he was having surgery and that, you know, the next 24 hours were going to be critical. So it was like, make your way over. So I went with Sean's brother, Peter, just think the kids packed my bag. I didn't know whether it was going for two days or Mm. two months. And how long were you away for? We were there till June. So your life with one phone call just changed everything. The bag and it was over there and because Sean was in the coma. So, you know, obviously I had to be there. But like that, the kids were left here and... I actually didn't know what that word community meant until Sean's incident. They literally, they kind of wrapped themselves around me, talking to the kids and they were like, the house is full of food. There was people knocking on the door. I mean, that was just the start of the journey. But like everybody would say to you, you know, it's a marathon that you're going to have with Sean and it's an ongoing marathon because it just, there was so many stages to it, you know. See, he had to be well enough to actually even fly home. And then when he got to Beaumont, you know, it was like, when can we get him into the NRH? That was another challenge trying to get him in because there's a waiting list. So he was months in Beaumont before he even got to the NRH. And then you only get X amount of time there. So that's when we made the decision to go to the UK because Sean needed so much more rehab. His time was up in Dublin, unfortunately. So we picked this place, Steps in Sheffield, which was great, but I think it kind of also helped me to understand because I was there 24-7 with Sean. So then I knew what I needed at home, hence the gym out the back. I knew that this is what he was going to need. And thankfully, he's still here. God, they've been on a long, long uh, road. Just their community in Dunboyne in County Mead, I know they've had massive support locally and Sean was chairman of the local GAA club. So all of those people rallied around, didn't they, Evelyn, and supported them? Yeah, we were laughing about there was always another lasagna on its way up the pathway, you know. <laughs> no but harm. Yeah, no harm. They even have a quiet corner, Claire, in the clubhouse bar for him. And even the other night, she was telling me he'd been down there joining his friends for a drink. And they always get such a great welcome. People have been wonderful. And one of his friends from the community, Fergus McNulty, he dropped in while I was there just to tell me a bit more about the Sean that he knew before the attack and the support they've been able to give to him and the family since that day. So here, Fergus and I are chatting in the garden of the Cox family home. I actually was at home watching the Liverpool game and I got a call from somebody said, did you hear that Sean might be in a bit of trouble? So really from there it just unfolded. I would have met Sean about 15 years ago through the GAA. He was the chairman of the club and kind of twisted my arm to get involved with them. And my first impression of Sean was, you know, extremely professional, making sure that particularly younger players, that there was a place for them to participate, really had a clear sense as to how the club could evolve and grow from a small club in a small town to a growing club in a growing town. He was instrumental in that, but in a very quiet way. Subtle. Um, subtle. Yeah. 
highly credible, but with a kind of an end goal in sight and did that remarkably well, but incredibly hard working. Oh my God, like the hours and hours and hours that Sean would have spent leading the club and extremely kind of focused on doing the right thing by everyone. And, you know, so thinking about the, you know, the weeks and months afterwards, obviously a big dark cloud hanging over Dunboyne, but bit by bit, you know, what can we do to help? The reaction beyond Dunboyne and still can't believe the level of empathy, the level of support, you know, how it touched a nerve far beyond those who would have known Sean. And that still amazes me, kind of restores your faith actually quite a bit. We kind of were very deliberate about how we wanted to manage that. So we did a, a community run or a community walk May, June, and we had about five or 6,000 people show up. Thought, what did you expect? Oh, I mean, nowhere near there if we could bring in five or six grand, you know, to start the ball rolling. But there was multiples of that. It was just unbelievable. You know, and the response at every single step was just completely overwhelming. We had a Dublin Mead match, for example. The level of empathy, the level of support and the way that Sean's situation and Martina's, I still am overwhelmed by how people react to that. Definitely would restore your faith in the goodness of people. And that's Fergus McNulty there. So the fifth anniversary of of the attack is on Monday, isn't it? On the the 24th of April, Evelyn. So how does Martina feel about the, the, the whole situation now? Well, she's just amazing, Claire. I mean, as you said yourself there, I mean, she, they've had such a journey, such darkness, and yet she now just says that love is what has guided her. And she says that Sean, I find this very moving, actually, is even more precious to her now. She's totally focused on his care and supporting him. They were just back, actually, from a trip to a Liverpool match last week, and the support they get from fans is amazing. And a few months ago, Claire, you might remember, you and I discussed the exoskeleton programme yes. where people can walk in DC. You remember that with the help of robotic technology? Well, Sean had a tryout session there. Uh, where he took 77 steps. Uh, so he starts that tomorrow. So she's delighted with that, you know, and he's also working very hard on his speech and language therapy, but, you know, struggles to talk. Still dependent on assistance to live, but a great communicator with her. But, you know, there is a long road ahead, but he is surrounded by such love and hope from his family and wider community, which, you know, of course has to help. So here Martine and I end just by describing life now. He's starting to like to be out more socially. How did that show? There's a light. face. face. Like he went up to a rehab facility in Dunboyne. He actually met somebody that he knew and they said his face just lit up. So we hope to get him there now. Start off one day a week and see how that goes because they do lots of different activities. So it's just nice for him to do different things and be around people similar, you know, disabilities as such. Now, it's coming up to the fifth anniversary. It's been the shortest five years and the longest five years. Is that... A reasonable, yeah. yeah, yeah. In some ways, long, and then in other ways, I actually can't believe. But I suppose there's just been so many different events. Sean was in hospital stroke rehab facilities for two years. So he was actually home three years, just, and I think it was about the 20th of March. COVID. How did he tied up in COVID? I mean, yeah, the 20th yeah. of March, 2020. Yeah, he was actually in Marymount Nursing Home while we were trying to get the house ready and then we had to escalate it because I really was very concerned as to how he would survive what not having any visitors because he's non-verbal. Get the care package done quicker, we just make sure we had bed, everything. And it happened. We managed it. We pulled it out of the bag. So at this point, the exoskeleton, that's a really positive thing. Do you project forward or do you just kind of go along and see how it unfolds? Yeah, look, at this point, I kind of take everything as it comes. We weren't sure whether Sean was going to be suitable. Thankfully, he is. I think it's going to be very good for Sean, even psychologically, and seeing himself, he's walking. And I think that's going to be really good for him, and it'll help him, you know. Now, he does walking with the physios, but obviously this really experienced um, physios that are going to be working with him. So we're obviously 
jumping on the opportunity. Hopefully we get as many sessions as we can out of it. I presume you want people to know that he's as well as you could hope at this point. He's getting everything that we can physically give him here. And then he's got his family around him. You know, I think he's very settled and he has a routine going on. I think that's good. He needs that. That was Evelyn O'Rourke's report on Today with Claire Byrne. And we wish Sean and all the Cox family the very best. Finding and keeping childcare workers is a big problem for people running services. A survey by the trade union SIP2 found that of over 2,000 childcare providers last month, most have vacancies and recruitment is negatively affecting their care. We'll hear from Dara O'Connor, SIP2's head of campaigns shortly, but first Lynette Monk, a manager of a community-based childcare service in North Dublin, told Kate Varley about the challenges she's facing on Morning Ireland. A recent recruitment drive that I had in my service took five rounds of advertising and interviewing and 18 weeks before I actually got somebody suitable to fill a post. And I really do count myself as, as lucky to, to have found somebody to fill that post because there aren't that many people coming forward for interview at the moment. And Lynette, what impact is that having on the day-to-day service that you provide I just absolutely dread that knock on the door and, you know, that somebody coming to, to talk to talk to me for a few minutes, just in case it means somebody's leaving and recruitment needs to start all over again. And, you know, these days it doesn't even have to be as bad as somebody leaving, just somebody looking for a day off or time to attend a hospital appointment. They bring just the same challenges. I have to maintain legal adult to child ratios and safe environments for the children in our care. And when I can't, I have to reduce the service that I provide. Are you concerned about your ability in the future to continue to provide care? Every single day you hear on the radio now, you know, advertisements for for local um, supermarkets who are offering more money than our highly skilled, highly educated workers are earning working in childcare. So yes, I do fear for tomorrow. That's Lynette Monk with our reporter, Kate Varley. Dara O'Connor is with us. He's SIP2's head of campaigns. Uh, Thank you very much for coming in to us this morning. Is Lynette's story representative of almost all the childcare bosses who took part in your survey? So it's a story that we've been hearing all over the country, anecdotally, and that's why we went out and we did the survey again this year. And certainly recruitment and retention is a, a big problem for a majority of services. So they're struggling to hire staff, they're struggling to keep on to the ones that they have. And it's having an impact exactly as Lynette was talking about. It means that they're struggling to keep the staff to child ratio, which is a legal uh, mandate and a legal minimum that they have to do. And also means that those who are remain in the work uh, are their workload is increasing as well. So we're seeing and what the, the, the stories we hear and what the survey is saying is that there's increased stress, there's increased workload and that compounds it. It's a, it's a vicious cycle of uh, the, the recruitment challenges, uh, people working really hard and just people struggling within the work. And why is it difficult to find and hold on to staff? Well, um, th- there's a couple of different reasons, but the, the main one is the, the rate of pay. Uh, earlier as educators, managers, uh, they have qualifications. They have, a lot of them have degrees as well. They're very dedicated uh, and kind of passionate about their work. But the minimum rate of pay for an earlier as educator is 13 euros an hour. 
Uh, now that's certainly improved over the last couple of years. It's uh, it's increased significantly. But given that there's a, such a huge cost of living increase, increases that's affecting everybody, it is traditionally being a low paid sector as well, that people see they're able to bring their skills and their qualifications into, into other industries. So they're moving on becoming teachers or SNAs, which are qu- quite equivalent professions that they can move into. Yes, you mentioned about the increased rates of pay because in the budget last year, the uh, the rates of the minimum rates of pay were increased from €13.21 to fifteen fifty an hour for those who had who uh, had the le- a level of graduate room leader and at the lower end it was increased from 11.57 an hour to 13 euro an hour. Has that made any difference? It has. We, we, it has. Uh, and certainly it looks like the the, the 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 extremes of the crisis have been reduced somewhat. Right? It's not, it, it is incredibly hard to recruit at the moment but it's not as bad as it was so last year. It has year. made it easier, yes. It, it has made it easier but the house is still on fire. Uh, and certainly the, the the investment was welcome, but it was only a start. Um, it certainly uh, uh, it addressed some of the the the, uh, the most difficult circumstances. Already brought in a minimum floor, but in no way reflects the professionalism, the qualifications that people have. There is a legal requirement, isn't there, for the ratio of childcare workers to children, and it varies depending on the age of the child. Mm-hmm. Is that been breached on many occasions because people can't find workers? Well, what we're you know, the survey is saying that people are struggling to maintain those ratios. So the options that people have is that you, you close down rooms or you have to restrict your service or you're not able to expand it to be able to reach the demand on it. But certainly that's, that's a, a, it's a, it's a concern, but it's a, it's, a, it's a huge juggling and a huge headache for the, for the managers who are running the services. Tell us about the impact all of this is having on the children. So... I think one of the things is that there's a uh, there's quite a high turnover of staff. It's around twenty percent on average right across the sector, and that varies dep- depending on the service type. And a lot of parents will know that it's the relationship between the staff member and the children that's where the quality comes from. They're incredibly important, and having that stability within the within the service is uh, is vital. And when you don't have that stability, when there's another worker at the door every couple of months. Um, that has a negative impact on quality. So it's really important, not just from a worker's point of view, that they have good, fulfilling jobs that they can stay at, but more importantly for the children that they're caring for. They need that stability. That's how that's how you improve quality within the sector. And we know that like good quality early years can have a, a huge impact on children's development, and particularly in areas of disadvantage, it can have a transformative effect. So, if we're if we're serious about quality, we have to make sure that we people are able to make careers and lives and stay in their profession. So, what do you think could or should be done to get and keep more workers? Well, I mean, I think you have to acknowledge the the moves that the government have made to try and address this issue. Uh, it was a start, but certainly there's two things that need to happen: is that uh, we need to in- increase investment to be able to uh, improve pay for workers so that they have that career and address the the stress and the burnout and the understaffing. And then we have to make sure that that investment uh, does what it says on the tin. So if there's money going to pay, we have to make sure it gets into the uh, into the pockets of workers. If there's money invested for affordability, we have to see parents' uh, fees being reduced. SIPTU's Head of Campaigns, Dara O'Connor on Morning Ireland. Polly Bennett joined Ryan Tuberty this morning. She has a very unique job. Sure, we'll let Polly tell you more. 
Um, it varies from job to job, but ultimately, uh, movement coach, movement director, choreographer. Okay, and to give this a bit of context, you helped Austin, you trans helped transform uh, Austin Butler from jobbing actor to Elvis Presley, um, uh, among among many others. And so much so, he was so grateful that when he got to the BAFTAs to collect his award, this is what he said. Um, I thank you all so much. Thank you, BAFTA, for this tremendous honor. This is amazing. <laughs> I'm really trying to take everything in and be really present. <laughs> I, um, you know, I, I've got so many people I want to thank. I'm going to start with saying thank you to Polly Bennett, my movement coach. I could not have done this without you, and I love you so much. Well, that's, that's Austin Butler thanking you, Polly. How, how did that feel when you were sitting down enjoying your day? Well, pretty good. I mean, it's ra it's rare that um, you know people are able to be in a position to to thank people like me for the work that we do behind the scenes. So it was it was a pretty incredible moment. I'm very thankful for it. Um, but it, you know, it's testimony to all of the hours that we did put in together. So um, it felt like I was a little bit a part of it, which well, was really good. A huge part of it because we uh, we were talking to Baz Luhrmann here on the program not too long ago about this film and uh, and about Elvis Presley himself. It is very uh, fragile territory to be to be in to try and bring Elvis alive again because people have tried and failed before. His fans, and I count myself among them, uh, would be very protective of it almost and kind of cur curious what you would do. What, how was your mindset going into this film in terms of trying to get the move of all the, the, the modern icons to get the movement right and, and uh, to get the actor comfortable? Tell me a little bit about that process. Um, well, I guess that, you know, there's one way of, of doing it, which might be watch a lot of footage, mm. copy it and pass it on. Um, but that's not very helpful for an actor because they're having to live a whole experience of a person, not just, a you know, a, an onstage performance. So my job was to sort of do a, a deep dive into everything that constitutes his movement for Elvis, which included both his onstage performances, his offstage performances mm. and the world that he that he lived in. Um, so, of course, the film tracked Elvis from when he was 19 until, you know, he until his death in his 40s. So I had to look at so much footage to be able to turn to, to try and find things that were similar, that, that kept repeating over the years and try and work out a kind of tapestry that I could pass over to Austin to work with his brain and how he thinks of movement to try and turn that into a practical thought um, for him to translate onto screen. So a lot of research, mm. um, a lot of time spent in a in a room together working things out um to try and work out the rhythms the the change in his weight why he might do things rather than what he's doing and mm. that's what what i find is really helpful for working with actors is so, the why so the why is, is intriguing because you you would think a movement coach would be all about physicality but actually the psychology here and and the, and the combination of the two gives it that authenticity that you mightn't get from a mimic yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, acting is psychology and it's um, about trying to find an authentic truth to whoever you're playing, whether they're someone that exists or someone that, you know, you are responsible for bringing to the screen um, as, as a creation. So, you know, I believe that everything that we do 
um, in life is in, infused with everything that we've done before. Mm. So the way, you know, I'm sitting on my chair right now is I've, I've got sort of a leg up in, uh, you know, with, with an open hip. And that's because I've, I've spent years in dance um, rehearsal rooms where I'm a dancer. The way that you're sitting right now might be because of your job and the way that you you know you engage with people and how you know you you operate in your space and that doesn't leave you when you leave the studio you mm. know that 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 it stays with you so i i think you can see people's history in their bodies and you know we we weren't meant to be in clothes and <laughs> shoes you know we've made a choice to do that so it's it's getting actors back to the kind of animal that that works physically and um has physical needs and desires and wants and those are the those are the things that um, I think help the psychology of an actor. So you go from scratch. I mean, you're almost in, it's a Neanderthal <laughs> basics. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it can be really intimidating, especially for Austin, you know, go and play Elvis Presley. You yeah. go, thanks so much. And then you go, oh, my God, how the hell do I do this? Um, so we have to kind of get the play back into the idea otherwise it can be such a an everest to climb and you know um elvis was you know just uh, just a boy that grew up in a african american community what he was around was african american dancing music um you know he he lived on sand you know on on um dusty floors um so if you look at that even as an idea you know the way that you might move your feet when the floor is when the floor is dusty already gives a kind of um, mm. inference into into how you might move. So a lot of his moves on stage are he shuffles his feet into the floor and he punctuates little steps. He's not lifting his knees up and slapping his feet down. Um, so that is, that's the why. It, it comes back to the why. Mm. And why he does that is because of how he how he grew up. So it is, it's going back to the the base of what who, who that person is as a person rather than who he is as the kind of wallpaper Elvis Presley that we all yes. have come to know. It's a much deeper uh, dive, if you like, and mm. he probably has, to this day, the most famous hips in showbiz uh, for, all the, for all the right reasons, um, even though they were controversial at the time. <laughs> so when you're saying to Austin uh, Butler, when you were, were training him and, and, and coaching him and saying, these are the most probably the most important bodily asset this this icon has. What are you telling him to do in terms of movement? Well, it's interesting because it, it's a it's a kind of misconception that it's its hips okay. that are moving. Um, and yeah. <laughs> because the amount of time that I've spent watching the footage of, of you know, why of, of when he's, you know, arguably moving his hips i've i've worked out that it's actually coming from his knees it's really? coming from the floor yeah so it's it's he's pushing his the back of his heels into the ground which then shuffles his feet forward which means he has to flick his knee almost as if he's got something on the back of his knee and that is the thing that moves his hips so it, it would be really easy to go Austin, wiggle your hips like this, but that there, there's no technicality to that. But actually, where the movement's coming from is from the knees, which is a, you know, which was a, a dance move back in the sort of 1950s, 19, late 1940s of the camel and the and the pony trot. Okay. So he's actually not doing anything. You know, he's not inventing anything. It's just his way of doing something that he's seen. But why did um, his? Why was his interpreted as being so sexual or sensuous? 
I guess because he was the, you know, he was a, a white man doing those moves. Okay. Um, all of the um, pop singers at the time were very sort of quite stationary mm. country folk, mm. you know, hid behind guitars um, and all about how they looked in terms of their suits and the, the cut of their jackets. Whereas Elvis came onto stage and started kind of uh, changing and shifting those perceptions of what a, what a performer was um, by infusing what he had known as a child uh, from the African-American um, communities. Yes. So when, when you see him on Milton Burl, which is a kind of famous performance yes. where you might go, oh, he's, he's moving his hips and he's really tantalising the audience, he is absolutely doing that, but it comes from the fact that he didn't have his guitar for the first time. So somebody said to him, well, Milton Burl said to him, take your guitar off, do it without the guitar. Yeah. And of course, he goes on stage and and has to improvise because he doesn't have the defense of the the musical object in front of him. So what he's doing is playing and drawing on everything that he's experienced wow. to entertain the audience. That's fascinating. Let, let me ask you about his hand, because... You know, when you think of Elvis, that the arm is outstretched and it's quite limp-wristed uh, in the sense that it's it's here. Here I'm telling you, Polly, you, but you can you you tell me what's <laughs> happening with the hand and that now how and again you're you're trying to transform Austin Butler into this guy, this this otherworldly figure. What what's happening here? Well, I guess you're talking specifically about the performances in the 1950s, yes. late 1950s, because yes. it's something that he doesn't really do come the 60s. Um, uh, the 60s being the 68 special, which you mm. might remember mm. from the film or, or um, you know, through material of him being in the black leather suit. And yeah. then, of course, the 70s is him in the the jumpsuits and sort of being much more masculine um, in terms of he's doing karate moves on stage and all that sort of business. But back, you know, to, to your point, the hand, you know, he was around, you know, he, he watched a lot of things that maybe children in those times didn't or shouldn't have watched. So he was engaging quite a lot with the burlesque scene um, right. in Tupelo. Um, so he saw a lot of women performing. So actually there's a move where he sort of, um, pushes his elbow out from the middle of his body and then extends his arm and his wrist is quite limp at the end. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like he's flicking off a, a glove in the same way that burlesque dancers did. So Austin and I would call it the burlesque move. Right. Whether or not that's truthful, you know, that's just from what we've, what we've yeah. investigated and imagined. Yeah. But that becomes a, you know, that becomes the reason why he's doing that move. I'm fascinated by the how in, in movie making, I've never been in a movie, but I'm fascinated by how there's a scene in the film, and, and I know you're involved with it, Polly, which was the screaming fans. And, and how can you encourage a bunch of 300 essentially extras to be ecstatic and out of control? Now, obviously, they, they can all do a bit of acting, but it must be so hard to replicate that intensity. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd love to ask you how you managed to stir that up. Well, this was, a, you know, it became really clear as I was working with Austin that I, you know, I needed to work with the crowds as well because mm. they are so much a part of Elvis's story. Um, so I went to Baz and I said, look, it, it, can I can I get all these extras together? Because I think there's some really specific things that that happen here. And, you know, because he's a wonderful creative brain and really invested in the physical world. It, it turned into a, a major part of the filmmaking where I was holding auditions, uh, castings, workshops to work out why those women, um, why those young girls actually uh, 
experienced Elvis the way that they did. And of course that that went into back into kind of research about why girls are are known for screaming, um, which actually like goes back to uh, tr- tribal roots of the idea that if you if you scream the loudest, you'll get the best man. <laughs> and I mean, wow. it's extraordinary ah, things it's that I just ne- I never thought about no. because, of course, what we see when we go to concerts is everyone goes Wah! and just kind of <laughs> screams, but we don't really know why we're doing it. <laughs> and so, when you look at why, you look at these girls that were probably you know, back in the 50s, kind of getting married by the time they were 16. And if it not 16, definitely by 18, otherwise they'd be on the shelf. So they, they, they were wearing corsets, they were wearing big dresses, they were being taught how to be housewives, they yeah. were being taught how to serve men. And then this guy comes up on stage. And so there's a real physical um, reaction. And there's, there's like four different stages of being a fan and how, you know, whether it's something that you think is... Um, you just like it and then it goes to the extremity of the whatever he's saying whatever he's doing is for you so that that's we sort of worked on that scale and I would work from watching footage try and work out imaginative ways to get the girls to respond the way that we needed so rather than just wave their hands up and down and kind of like shake their faces I gave them the idea of a volcano bubbling away in their belly or um, that they had toothache (laughs) <laughs> um, so if I just give you the idea of having toothache wow. or anyone listening, the you know you you sort of start touching your face and you start maybe closing your mouth, <laughs> and then you've got an obstacle to then scream against if you've got toothache. Amazing. So it gives them a kind of tension, which means that well, I hope that. Um, people will agree that our our crowd had a real visceral experience to to Elvis and the idea of their corsets flinging off, which is why we get people standing up, which is why we get them um, embracing chairs and uh, rocking their body back and arching their backs. And that's not to say, do this thing because I've seen it in a picture. It's to try and give them a physical... um, image that they're working through so that they feel attached to the work. Well, I have to say, uh, hats off to you because you really, you, you, you uh, achieved such magnificence really with Elvis, which I just was one of my fav- favourite films last year, but I can see the work you put into it and the work ethic, it's it's extraordinary. And I want to talk briefly about Rami Malek, Malek if you don't mind, mm. uh, because you also transformed him at, into Freddie Mercury for Bohemian Rhapsody, again, another Oscar there, or an Oscar I should say there. Um, what I, from, I think the reason I wanted to talk to you today, Polly, was because I was reading about you one day, and I mentioned it on the programme, about the fact that you made him, you made uh, the actor Rami walk up and down Oxford Street. Um, <laughs> now, why did you do this? And what did you make him walk? You didn't just make him walk up and down. You, did, you, you, you added a flair to it. So talk to me about yeah. that. Well, that sounds like I was like, I'm a mad tyrant. But yes, it does, it, a little, think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But the thing is, with, with Rami, he... You know, Austin had been on stage. You yeah. know, he is he is a person that is used to sort of being looked at. Rami's experience uh, as a as a person as an actor has been quite private. Like he 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 hasn't trained in a in a drama school as such. Um, he's never sung on stage, and so the the purest essence of of um, Freddie Mercury is that he loved being seen Mm. and and that is something that you can't I couldn't leave up to chance that he would um that Rami would just go on set one day and suddenly be able to perform and engage with as many people as he had to engage with so we were actually rehearsing in a dance studio off Oxford Street and when we came out uh, of a rehearsal one day there was a, a busker um playing um 
Bohemian Rhapsody. And so I said, and he was carrying his half mic as he was doing back in the day because, you know, he'd carry it to rehearsals. And I said, walk walk up and down the street. You know, we're going to walk up the street and you're going to hold your half mic above your head. And um, we did that on Oxford Street. We did it in Regent's Park. You know, anywhere that felt like, felt like a big stadium spaces because a rehearsal space, you know, you have to really imagine the idea of being, you know, um, at Wembley. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 it gave him a sense of uh, confidence, I guess, but also allowed him to play the physical notes that I was, which I was giving, which essentially was the idea that everything that you do is fantastic. Mm. So if if I'm walking down the street and going, this is brilliant, I'm fantastic, this is brilliant, and if I move my hand like this, that's brilliant, that actually gives you the real nuanced movements that Freddie does where he sort of agrees with himself when he's on stage. <laughs> so he does he does a movement and then he sort of like nods or agrees yes, with the movement. Yes, yeah, very and good. That, and, and that gave you know Rami that experience. So... You know, it wasn't that we were doing it every day. It was just ways to get it out into the open because the worst case scenario would be him going on stage at, at the Live Aid set and freaking out. Yeah. And I couldn't be responsible for that. So. No, no. You, you kind of had to turn him into a human peacock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, something like that. I mean, yeah. you know, all, because that, that, that thing Freddie Mercury used to do about, you know, when he kind of punched the air or he'd do that double punch thing or, or triple. I'm mm. trying to do it here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and then and then the, then the, last, the one that would reach out almost to the crowd as a final yeah. flyer. What, what is that coming from? Or? Well, I mean, it goes back to what I'm saying about the why. And, you know, we look at these things and, you know, if you were like you were just doing or if you're at a, a dance floor in a wedding and you hear a Queen song, everyone <laughs> sort of starts punching quite wildly or yes. strutting around. Yes. And that all comes for me, again, going back to the movement heritage of, of Freddie, like why he moves the way he does, is he actually at school was, you know, he was bullied a lot for the way he looked, yeah. but he also was a very good sportsman. He did a lot of long distance running. You know, he he was champion at his school. Right. He um, boxed and he was known for playing golf so all of the things that so when you look at live aid i'm going why is he punching and then you go oh my gosh he was he was boxing as a kid so that's the same as me standing in first position because i did ballet yes you know he's yes. he's just doing this the things that are known in his body so he's not um pretending to be anyone else it's the most authentic thing which is his physical story so him punching and him um swinging his half mic as if it was a golf club when brian may is doing a guitar solo or him running on stage with really high knees very different than elvis you know he runs across the stage he's playing to the stadium but with the physical narrative that he that he owns that is so fascinating and so disappointing the fact that he's he, that i mean the idea that freddie mercury and golf i'm not anti golf by any means but it's just so <laughs> at odds with the man well i but, think he really liked just swinging i don't know if yes. it's like he was a really a golf, really yeah. avid putter putter i think he you know yeah, i think no. the show business <laughs> and the maybe the chatting with friends was what he liked and that was polly bennett on the Ryan Tuberty Show. Well, that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow, but from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.